There we go. Revelation chapter three. We uh, are in the middle of, or just the end of, I should say, the letters to the seven churches that Jesus writes to, uh, dictates, I should say, and the apostle John writes them down. So Revelation, if you don't have a Bible, there's one on the table back there in the back next to the door. Uh, so there are seven churches and they're in a variety of states uh, in terms of their spirituality. Some are doing very well. Some have improvement that's needed. And we've just come to the final church in Laodicea. These are all in what would be now modern day Turkey, uh, Western Turkey. It's called in the Bible, Asia Minor. That's basically Western Turkey uh, today. So this, I'm just going to read uh, 14 to 19, and then we'll start discussing uh, it again. Uh, so I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Oh, that was good. And those of you on Zoom, say amen or wave or do something. Oh, great. Oh, look, my little amen sign. I love it. We have some Christian friends in the country of Vanuatu, halfway around the world watching. Verse 14 of chapter 3 of Revelation, to the angel, and that's the messenger or the pastor of that church, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. The word is really more like vomit. This is the church that gets the F in terms of the grade. You say, verse 17, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked for a number of reasons. Pretty much scholars are universally agreed. This is of the seven churches, the one that is unsaved. They are not saved because I never know. I don't know of any Christian description in the Bible of someone that is wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And here they here. That's the description of this church. They are overconfident due to their wealth and um, think they don't need anything but they need the Lord Jesus. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. We said last week, there are scriptures that speak of gold and make the analogy with Christian faith, that it is like gold spiritually. So I counsel, verse 18, uh, you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear. They were known for exporting black cloth and clothing, white clothes to wear, the robes of righteousness that the, uh, the saved people have, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. Again, never said about believers in the Bible. Nakedness speaks of their being uh, unsaved. We've said before in this Bible study, garments, one's clothing is a metaphor in the Bible throughout Old and New Testament for one's spiritual condition. Adam and Eve sin, they immediately know that they are naked and they cover up right um so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so that you can see meaning they're blind they were known for their eyes salve that they exported those whom i love 19 says i rebuke and discipline so be earnest 
and turn. Repent. Repentance is more than just feeling bad about your sin. It's an actual U-turn on the road of life where you acknowledge that your sin is sin to God and it's an affront to him and you turn and go the other way. You repent of your sin and your actions prove that you've repented. So here's verse 20. That's where we left off. But verse 19, let me just say, it's amazing. This church is unsaved and they're referred to by Jesus in verse 19 as those I what? Love. It's amazing. There's grace. He's rebuking him and disciplining them because he loves them. So verse 20 is maybe the saddest verse in the book of Revelation. Here I am, Jesus says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. That should shock this church. The theory is that John would make seven copies at least of the book of Revelation and that each church would get a copy. The Sardis church, the um, Thyatira church, Philadelphia, the pastor would get it and read it to his congregation. And knowing it's a letter from Jesus, I would think they would go over it with a fine tooth comb, maybe six week series on five verses, right? Worse than me. Amen. But so here we are in verse 20. This should shock them because this is Jesus Christ, the point of their church. And he's saying, I'm standing at the door outside the church. And the church of Philadelphia was told that he's placed an open door before them. This is the church of the closed door to Jesus. He is on the outside looking in. And instead of deserting them in love, he's standing at the door and knocking metaphorically. This verse has been used a lot in evangelism to say, and it's true for any unbeliever, you know, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. You have to open the door and let him in, not as a friend only, but as Lord and Savior, the boss of your life. And he will save you. Your faith in his sacrifice on the cross will save you. So, but here he is standing outside trying to bring a lifeless church, spiritual life. Pretty amazing. But it's an invitation I want you to see to a deep, intimate relationship. Um, let's look at that verse again. Verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, notice it's not if the church God always deals with individuals. Yes, he deals with the body of Christ in a church, which is his command that we meet together, not just on Zoom, but together. But this is individual. If anyone, it recalls um, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, doesn't matter what you've done in the past, if you're willing to repent of it and make Jesus your Lord, whosoever. He's saying if anyone... Here's the command. Here's the prerequisite. Here's my voice. Now, what does that mean? That they are deaf spiritually, just like they're blind in a sense. To hear his voice, you have to read the word or a friend. His voice could be a friend that's a Christian witnessing to one of these people, or it could be the reading of his word or a sermon that's given somewhere. If anyone hears his voice, and then there's the action. Um, let's see, if anyone hears my voice and does something, opens the door. 
That's more than just hearing. It's more than just agreeing that it's true. Remember the acronym CAT, K-A-T, the wrong way to spell CAT? To be truly saved, you have to have K, knowledge, a basic understanding of Jesus, of our sin, his death on the cross that I mentioned earlier, knowledge. You also have to have A, agreement. It's not enough to have the knowledge. I might explain it to Ken here, and he might say, I understand it. I just don't believe it. A is, I agree that it's true. Now, the demons believe and shudder, so they have the K and the A. So what's the T? Trust. You have to be trusting in that and that only. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross for your salvation. Knowledge, agreement, trust. K-A-T. And yes, I know how to spell cat the real way. Okay. Um, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, metaphorically, it's the door of your life to say, yes. I agree. I can't save myself. I know I'm a sinner. I receive you, Lord Jesus, come into my life. The words are not as important as the sentiment and the sincerity. If anyone does those two things, hears, opens the door, end of verse 20, Jesus promises there, I might, no, I will come in. That's an amazing thing and eat with that person, dine with that person. That word for dine is the word for the evening meal, the main meal in a Jewish household, supper, we would call it. It was the, more, much more in their culture, culture than in ours. To eat with someone meant you agree with them, you're having fellowship with them. Um, it's an invitation to absolute fellowship. Uh, if anyone opens the door, here's my voice, opens the door, I'll come in. I will eat with that person, and they with me. As I said, and it bears repeating, uh, John MacArthur has sermons on this, lordship salvation. Some people want Jesus for fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. Okay, I'm in. I believe in Jesus. What do I have to do? Okay, I agree. But he is your savior when he saves you. He is your Lord and master, meaning boss, meaning when you want A and the Bible says B, you choose B, lordship, salvation. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. Um, verse 21, to the one who is victorious or an overcomer, some translations have, that's the one who believes to the end. That's defined elsewhere in the book of Revelation. We won't go there now. To the one who is victorious or an overcomer, I will give the right to, I'm expecting, remember, this is a church that's been going through the motions. They think they're saved. He's saying, you're not even close. Okay. I'm expecting him to say, if you'll do this and receive me, I'll let you sweep floors in heaven and have a little shack. Listen to the grace of verse uh, 21. It's amazing. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. We reign and rule with Christ. That's going to come up in chapter four and five as well. The New Testament says that, do you not know that we believers will judge, wait for it, angels? We will, the, the apostles are told they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. We in some way will sit on his throne with him 
and reign with him. Most scholars believe this is the millennium, thousand years still coming future after the end of the world and the second coming of Jesus. To the one who's victorious, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious. Unbelievable. Verse 22 is in all seven letters. Whoever has ears, he that hath an ear, King James, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the reminder that you're not reading somebody else's mail that doesn't re relate to you. That's a reminder that these seven letters have something for every church and for every individual so that we can read this as, oh boy, those sinful Laodiceans. And then we have to ask ourselves, are we trusting too much as they were in their riches and the comfort of having air conditioning and a home and all those things and a bank account maybe, or a PhD, people glory in the dumbest things that'll all be nothing when we get to heaven. You'll see that in chapter four. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches, plural. Um, that's the admonition for all of us to be looking. A um, couple quick things and we'll move on. You don't have to turn there, but Song of Solomon Chapter five, verse two. This is interesting. He's standing at the door, Jesus is, of this wayward church that thinks they believe and they've been going through the motions and they don't. And he's knocking as the savior. He's knocking as the Lord Jesus. He's been disciplining them and rebuking them. Might even sound a little disgusted and angry. I'll spit you out of my mouth. And yet, Song of Solomon chapter five, he is also the lover of your soul. Listen, listen to Psalm, Song of Solomon 5.2, quote, it is the voice of my beloved. He knocks saying, open for me, my sister, my love. He is not just an uh, autocrat who wants to rule you. He is the lover of your soul who God so loved the world he gave Jesus. You might add to that, Jesus loves the world just that much. I just think that's beautiful. But you have to hear his voice. The truth is that we are not spiritually damaged by sin in our unsaved state. The Bible says that we are, Ephesians 2 verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Can a dead man hear? No. That's why John 3 says we have to be, what? Born again quickened by the Holy Spirit, awakened, awakened to the point that we suddenly hear him. I can attest to the fact that I read the Bible before I believe I was saved, and it felt like I was reading somebody else's mail. Made no sense to me. I read the same passages now, and I can't believe how much more sense it makes. It's not because I'm any smarter um, or the, any more spiritual than I was. It's the Holy Spirit illuminating the word of God, making it come to life. It's a beautiful thing, but we have to hear his voice. And so for some people that you know who aren't saved, who are not believers, the only voice they might hear is yours. The only Jesus they might see is the one in you and in your behavior and in your words. What's the point, Joe? Just this spread the gospel, plant the seeds. You're not responsible to make the growth happen. First Corinthians says that's God's business to bring the growth, but we are to plant seeds. We are to spread the gospel to people. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> they may just hear his voice in what you're saying that brings glory 
to God. Um, we already talked about that. Um, we will judge the world. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Um, but also, um, the Bible says that we will judge, we will rule with Christ forever at the end of this book, Revelation. Let's review quickly before we take our field trip to heaven. I'd rather go there, right? Let's review quickly the seven letters. I grouped things in a couple ways. Bear with me. I got together the seven letters and I thought, let's look at, since they're for all of us, he who has an ear, let him hear. Let's look at all the good things Jesus praised and make those a model for what we want to make our lives and our church be. The good things he praises in the seven letters are good works, labor, meaning working for the gospel, patience, service, not putting up with evil in the church. He condemns that. He, he praises going through trials with patience. Hard to do. He praises hating false doctrine. He praises one church that has just a little strength, but God can use that strength, can't he? He praises the church that tests false prophets. How do you test them? Against the word of God, against the Bible. He praises perseverance and being rich in spite of poverty, physical poverty, monetary poverty is inconsequential compared to spiritual riches. <clears throat> we said last week and the week before, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus trying to convince Jews, you can't make it being a Jew. You need a Savior. So he says, very early on in the Beatitudes, first part of chapter five, do you remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The ones who know spiritually, I'm bankrupt. I, I can't possibly save a righteous God. Uh, please a righteous God. I can't possibly not sin. I can't possibly pay for my own sin, even by doing good deeds. The poor in spirit know that they're poor in spirit and they are willing to receive. Laodicea thought they were rich. And therefore, who needs God? We've got it all. So the other things that he please, that please Christ and that he praises are holding on to Christ's name, who and what he is, based on the word of God. Their faith, holding on to that, even in martyrdom, and having a few who were undefiled by the word, by the world, sorry. Okay, here's the, a list of the bad things that Jesus uh, corrects or rebukes in these seven letters. Here we go. Some, Ephesus of what is who it was, left their first love. Remember how excited you were when you first came to Jesus Christ and how your life changed? And then you got a little distracted and you left your first love. That first love for him works itself out not only in obedience and worship for him vertically, but horizontally in the way we love each other. They left their first love. These are the things he corrected. They allowed some to have false doctrines. They permitted a Jezebel-like woman to teach false doctrine and immorality. They let it go in the church. He corrects that. Idol worship, he condemned. He con condemned works that we do for Christ's kingdom that are incomplete or imperfect. He condemned a church for being dead, for being lukewarm, wretched, blind, naked, self-confident. Um, let's see, we already talked about that. So um, 
Here are the seven churches very quickly. Turn to chapter two, verse one. I'm going to try to do this as quickly as I can. Some of you are saying you can't do anything quickly, and you're probably right. Chapter two, verses one through seven is the church in Ephesus. This is a somewhat backslidden church. They're doing great stuff. They've forgotten their first love. Maybe their, their love and worship for Jesus has become hollow, and the way they treat others, the love is not being shown horizontally. Advice for them is don't let your love grow cold. Smyrna, the church for chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Again, these are all in Western Turkey, which is Asia Minor. Asia Minor. Smyrna is the church that was persecuted and suffered martyrdom from Rome. His advice to them, don't fear the persecution of the world. Just remain faithful to me throughout. The church in Pergamum, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, this is the licentious church, the church that's worldly, that kind of has loose morals, and we just kind of let everything go, and our conduct doesn't matter that much. It's what we believe, not how we act. They were also married to the state, meaning Rome. His advice for them, trust the word of God to keep you strong and faithful. And folks, the word of God, you can't place it next to your head and expect to have a download. You got to read it thoughtfully, slowly, on a daily basis, don't you? Spiritual food. The church in Thyatira, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, very lax, corrupt, compromising political church. His advice, avoid Avoid both sexual and spiritual adultery, having other gods, idols, and be pure. The church in Sardis, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, the dead church. Wake up is his advice. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. What he means is there was a few that had faith in that church, but for the most part, it was a dead church. They're going through the motions. Philadelphia, the church about which he says nothing bad. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, his advice to remember, I will open a door for you, a door open, witness and ministry. Um, he says about them that they have deeds, a little strength, and they have kept his word and not denied Jesus's name. And lastly, the Laodicean church, we just talked about it, the lukewarm, wishy-washy church. His advice, don't yield to complacency. Invite me in to change your life. If they invite him in, he'll dine with them. May I say, he'll probably do a little housekeeping too, don't you think? A little cleaning up. All right, we're going to go to chapter four. I can't wait. Um, let me give you a brief introduction for chapter four. Um, and maybe it's helpful. Go back to chapter one. This will really help. Chapter one, John gets in one verse an outline for the whole book of Revelation, and it's verse 19. He tells John in chapter one, verse 19, write, therefore, what you have seen, which is what already occurred in chapter one, which is the vision of who and what Jesus really is, the majestic, awesome Jesus, not the carpenter from Nazareth. He doesn't look that way anymore. He is fully God and fully man. So write, so here's the um, threefold or three um, divisions of Revelation. Write, number one, what you've seen. That means everything before that, verses one to 18. Number two, write what is now. See that in the middle of that verse? That's the letters to the seven churches. 
now going on currently at the time he's writing in Asia Minor, Turkey. And what will take place later, that's chapter four all the way to the end of the book. So what will take place in the future later is prophecy, future. Now, with that in mind, go to chapter four. So the focus is going to change from the seven churches, what uh, is, to what will be in the future. Um, let's see, we already talked about that. Okay, I have to give you a, a, a note here, and that is, as I warned you when we started this book, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, it is the hardest book to interpret, the hardest book to teach. And so we who teach Bible studies or give sermons really try to get to the heart of what the meaning of the passage is and convey it in a way and apply it in a way that makes sense to our lives in 2022. Revelation is one of those books, if you're teaching it and you're honest, there are a lot of places where you can do just that. But there are also places in which you have to say, scholars really disagree on this. Some think it means A, but there are a lot that think it means B, and there's even some that think it means C. And so you're going to start to see Joe doing more and more of that in chapter four and five, but especially from six on. Just wanted to give you that advisory. There are four ways we said in the introduction to interpret the book of Revelation. Let me quickly give you them again. Um, number one is the idealist approach. The idealist approach or allegory approach is this is not prophecy. This is just an allegory about the struggle on, uh, on planet Earth between evil, Satan, demons, temptation, the world, the flesh, the devil, and God's people. It's just an allegory. It fits every generation in the same way. It's not predicting anything. That's all it is. That's the idealist or allegory approach. Then there is the uh, historical approach. That approach is that Again, it's not really prophecy. This is a history of the Christian church from its foundation around 30 AD to now and beyond. That's all it is. Then there is the preterist approach. By the way, we're going to do the fourth one, but this is number three. Um, the preterist approach is that everything in this book, believe it or not, already happened. Revelation chapters 1 through 20, at least 20, in the preterist view, have already occurred. You say, really? When? 70 AD and the years right before and right after. Why 70 AD? That's when Christ came on Israel in judgment. For rejecting their Messiah, the punishment was he let Rome or maybe led Rome to come into Israel and sack the city of Jerusalem, kill over a million Jews, take half a million captive as slaves, burn the temple to the ground, burn the city, destroy the city. That was the end of, practically speaking, Judaism. They haven't had since then, 70 AD, a high priest, not even one, a temple, not even one, a sacrifice, not even one. Why? Because Jesus Christ fulfills those things. He is our temple. He is the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our high priest who offers a sacrifice, not a lamb, 
himself, the lamb. So that's the preterist approach. It all happened right around 70 AD. To believe that, you have to believe that John wrote this book before 70 AD. Almost every scholar I can read says he wrote it around 95 AD. No mention of the destruction of Jerusalem. The fourth approach, the one that most people read the book of Revelation with, is the futuristic approach, that it is prophecy. As we said in that outline in chapter 1, verse 19, the things that you just saw, the things that are, the, two, the seven churches, two chapters, and then the things that must soon take place. It sounds like it's future prophecy. In this book, we're going to see the second coming of Jesus. Before that, the seven-year tribulation. We're going to see the rise of Antichrist. We're going to see spectacular special effects, signs in the sun, moon, and stars, all of that. We're going to see the end of the world, the millennium, and the eternal state, chapters 21 and 22. Don't you look ahead now. Chapter 21 and 22 is your brochure for what heaven will be like, and it's awesome. But starting off here in chapter four, there's a key word. This key word, chapter four, if you look, is only 11 verses. Do you see that? Short chapter. This key word appears 13 times in 11 verses. So it's the key word. And the word is, you ready? Throne. John does not really describe God. If that's what you're hoping for, you're out of luck. The reason is, with our puny brains and his senses of sight and hearing and you know the other senses that a human being has, you cannot adequately begin to describe God. But we're going to take a field trip to heaven. Let's dive in. Are you still awake? Say amen. Okay, good. After this, after what? After he got the vision of who Jesus was, after he got the seven letters dictated by Christ and wrote them down, and that doesn't mean that it happened instantly. Some scholars think it might have been a week later. This happened. Doesn't really matter, but I thought I'd throw it in. After this, I looked. Uh, King James is great here. And behold, there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that's Jesus from chapter one, said, come up here. And I will show you what you must, what must, I will show you, sorry, what must take place after this. Sounds like future to me, prophecy, right? Okay, so he is, uh, John is shocked and says, behold, he looks and there's a door standing open in heaven. The door doesn't open, it's already open. Now he sees this. You'll see in verse 2 that he says he's immediately in the spirit. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, is transported to heaven. Do you remember? And he admits, whether I was in the body physically, like I literally took a trip up there, or out of the body, he says, I don't know. God knows. So was this an ecstatic, spiritual, godly, not occultic, trance that he was in and seeing things, even though he's still sitting under a tree in Patmos, or does he actually physically go there? We don't know. 
It sounds more to me like he doesn't go there in the body. It's in the spirit. You'll see that in verse two. Um, okay, so after this, and there, there's a door standing open in heaven. Now, is there an actual door or is this a metaphor for the fact that it's open to him to go? That's probably what it is, right? Is it a wooden door? It's not that kind of a question, right? So the ver voice he had first heard, Jesus's voice, like a trumpet. That's why I read it kind of loud. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So he's inviting John, come up here. Might have been a physical, he wrote, floated up, I don't know. But he's about to enter heaven up here where Jesus is, right? Okay, some people who believe in the pre-tribulation, seven-year tribulation, pre-tribulation rapture of the church use this verse and say, that's the rapture. Come up here. However, the rapture is not spiritual. It is, but it's more physical. There's a change in our physical bodies, and then we go up to meet the Lord in the air, right? Uh, first and second Thessalonians talks about it at first uh, Corinthians 15. So even John MacArthur, who believes in the pre-tribulation rapture, Dr. John, John MacArthur says, this is not a pre-tribulation rapture verse. There are others. This isn't one of them. This is just John being called up to heaven to see. He doesn't say, come up here and be glorified. He says, I'll show you what's going to take place. After this stops, he's going to be back on planet earth in his normal life again, right? John has a series of visions in the book of Revelation. Listen, and most of them, not all, take place from the vantage point of heaven. Some take place from the vantage point on earth again. It, he kind of goes back and forth, you'll see in this book. So anyway, um, we already talked about that. Last thing, the throne is not in a palace. The throne is in heaven and the throne is in a temple. We find that out way at the end, Revelation 21, but we won't go there now. Let's go back to verse one. So he says, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. Verse two, at once I was in the spirit. What exactly does that mean? I'm not sure. It happens in chapter one as well. In the spirit, sort of in a spiritual trance in some way, a vision he's having. And there before me, change of location, was a throne. He doesn't mean that the throne is under the tree in Patmos where he was sitting or in his house, in his bedroom. It means he feels like he's been transported and he's seeing a whole new scene. He's going to describe a scene, folks, that is so spectacular. It's incredible. And I'll show you in a second, it is not new because it's elsewhere in the Old Testament. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. You may say, well, that's pretty simple. Let's move on. Listen, what that throne means is that there is no such thing as coincidence in all of human life. Do you know that the Jews, Hebrew is a very descriptive language? Guess what English word the Hebrews don't have a word for? Coincidence. Coincidence means it just 
happened. The Jews believe, as do I, everything happens for a reason. And someone, the one on the throne, God the Father, causes things or allows things to occur. No happenstance, no luck. You know, what a lucky break. God's in heaven going, it was me, you fool, right? Okay, there's someone on the throne. Atheists believe there's no throne, right? There's no throne. Nobody created the universe. It just happened. How believable is that, by the way? They believe that everything just happens for a reason. And when you live and you die and you die and you rot in the ground like a dog. No offense to you, dog owners. I love dogs. Atheists believe there's no one on the throne, right? A lot of people believe there's someone on the throne when bad stuff happens. And they shake their fist at God. How could you let this happen? In insurance circles, disasters are called, look it up on your policy. You ready? Acts of God. Disasters. Not the fact that you can digest a meal, breathe, walk, see, hear, not all the blessings you've been given, the talents you have, the money that you have. None of that's an act of God. Disasters. Folks, there's someone on the throne. That's the first thing I want you to see. Why do you think throne comes up 13 times in 11 verses? There's someone on the throne. Okay, um, before we go there, uh, notice that you're not going to see a description of God. We already talked about that. But um, besides atheists, there's another category I want to talk about. Humanists. Do you know who these people are? They agree there's no God on the throne. Man is on the throne. Norman Lear, the TV director from the 70s, 80s, 90s, he is a humanist. He believes we can do this. We can solve the problems on planet Earth, to which I say we've had thousands of years and thousands of empires and thousands of dictators and kings and presidents, and we don't seem to be doing too well, Norman. There's someone on the throne. The beauty for atheists is I don't have to care about anybody on the throne. There's nobody I ever have to answer to when I die. I can do whatever I want. In fact, maybe it's me that's on the throne who can decide this is good, this is bad. We put ourselves on the throne in the place of God, which there's a word for in the Bible, blasphemy, right? To make ourselves God. But there is someone on the throne. Um, that's all we know so far. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. So um, this little trip that we're going to take and are taking to heaven is about to get spectacular. Special effects galore. I just want to warn you. Um, let's see. Okay. What else is up there besides what he's mentioning? In this chapter, a bunch of things are mentioned. They all have to do with their position in regard to on the throne, around the throne, near the throne, before the throne. It's all throne, throne, throne. That's the whole point.
I don't want you to picture this as the throne room of God that's 30 feet by 20 feet, like a large family room in a house. I'd rather that you picture it as an indoor stadium. It's a hall. It's a giant room. There's a sea of glass on the floor, not a bunch of little linoleum tiles. It's big, this place, okay? Um, I just want to get you in that mood here. Um, but there is someone on the throne that we have to answer to. Um, before we move on, oh, you know what? It's time to take our two-minute break. When we come back, we're going to look at Daniel because Daniel got a vision of this stuff too. And then we're going to look at Isaiah because he did too. And we might even go to Ezekiel. But for now, we're going to take our two-minute break and uh, just to stretch our aging bodies. Some of us are aging more than others. I'm going to turn my screen off and pause the recording. I'll be back in two minutes. Those of you on Zoom, don't go away. We'll be right back. There we go. There's my secretary. Um, do find your seats, and we are back in Revelation, but we're going to take a detour, so keep your finger in Revelation and go to Daniel. So the easiest way to find Daniel is go to the middle of your Bible and take a right. Middle of your Bible is usually Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, somewhere in there. Take a right and go to Daniel chapter 7 with me, if you will. We won't be here long, I promise. We did Daniel about a, nine months ago, didn't we? Something like that, uh, a year ago. Daniel chapter 7. I'll give you a second to get there. Daniel chapter 7. Um, and pick it up in verse uh, 9. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's getting a vision, just like Joseph, uh, John was here. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, and as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, took his seat. There's someone on the throne. Ancient of Days took his, took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands attended him, probably angels. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and books were opened. Okay, I'm going to skip down to verse 13. Stay with me. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. This is not the ancient of days. That's God the Father. The one like a son of man. You remember Jesus in the Gospels. It's his favorite designation for himself, the son of man. Okay? Here he is with God in heaven, and this is Daniel, seven or 800 years before Jesus shows up in Bethlehem. In my night vision, I looked, verse 13, Daniel 7, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Daniel seeing a vision of the future. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Since we're so close and you're in Daniel, take a left 
and go about four books back, go beyond, go before a Jeremiah to Isaiah chapter six with me, just for a second. You say, but we want to go to heaven with a field trip. We will. If you kids are good, we'll go on the field trip. If not, we won't. D Isaiah six, verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. We're about to meet them. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah's getting a peek of what John gets a peek of. We're going to compare them. Um, let's see, look at Isaiah's reaction in verse five. So I gave God a high five and told him that, is that what it says? Woe to me or woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord almighty. And then he's, uh, one of the angels comes to him. Uh, anyway, keep that in mind. Go back to revelation chapter four with me. Let's take our field trip now for real. Are you still awake? Say amen. Okay, good. So he hears a voice come up here at once. Verse two, he's, um, I'm in Revelation four. He's in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Can't describe God. And the one who sat there, verse three, he's going to try to describe him, had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. By the way, that let's deal with the rainbow first. We usually see rainbows, don't we? A reminder of uh, Genesis, God's promise to Noah, he'll never flood the earth again. Remember that? Usually a rainbow is a half circle, semicircle, right? This rainbow encircles the throne all the way around. I want you to notice it is not multicolor. It's different shades of green. Why is that? I don't know. I will say this, that the, there, have, there are some groups that are less than holy that have co-opted the image of a rainbow and made it mean something that God never intended for it to mean. A rainbow is a picture of God's grace and mercy that he will never flood the earth again. They've co-opted it to something perverted. Don't make me describe it for you, because I will. No, I won't. All right. Also in heaven, we're going to learn in chapter 8, there's a golden altar of incense. There's the Ark of the Covenant, chapter 11. Um, but in any case, let's talk about the stones. What on earth is Jasper and what on earth is um, Sardis? Some translations have the word ruby. Sardis is a deep, bright red stone. Jasper, we learn at the end of the uh, book of Revelation, is a perfectly clear as crystal stone. Think, and very valuable, think diamond, okay? Don't get hung up on the value of the stones, though, because remember, in heaven, the streets are paved with gold. Does that mean gold's valuable? Just the opposite. 
what we consider the most valuable thing, gold, diamonds, God says, oh yeah, we paved the ground with that around here. It's no big deal to us. Okay, let's keep rolling. So he had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a totally clear, beautiful stone and a red stone. Does that mean he's translucent with a red tint? I don't know. But the point is, this is not, and I hate this term, when people refer to God and they say about him, the man upstairs, you ever hear that? He's not the man upstairs. Does it look like the man upstairs? Um, by the way, the throne might be gigantic. I just want to mention that in our stadium of the throne room of God. Might be bigger than a stadium. How do you know it's gigantic? Because there's going to be more than one person on it. I'll just file that away for now. Um, so, but there's surrounding glory for that throne. There's glistening light, white light and red light. Um, some scholars think the white or clear is the empty tomb and absolute purity. Some think the red is the blood of Calvary. Is that what it says? No. Could it be true? Yes. Might it be wrong? Yes. I don't know. Um, but in any case, um, it's interesting. In Exodus 39, the Jewish high priest wore a breastplate with 12 precious stones on it. The first one is Jasper. The last one is Sardis or Ruby. Some connection there? Probably. Um, just thought I would throw that in. Uh, we already talked about the rainbow, but already this is like a sci-fi movie. He's seeing things. This is, John can't say it was just like what I saw last Thursday. No, it's pretty unique. It's about to get way more sci-fi. Stay tuned. Fasten your seatbelts. So far, we've got that rainbow that shines like an emerald green uh, uh, encircling the throne. The one on it, appearance of Jasper and Ruby. Verse four, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, obviously lesser subordinate thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. 24 elders. Okay. Remember what I warned you about? Who are the elders, Joe? Some think, <laughs> some think they are human beings. Some think they are angels. There's a good case to be made for both. I'm going to tell you why I think they're human beings in a second. Okay. Um, a lot of scholars think they represent God's people, all the faithful of all history. If so, it does fit nicely because 24 divided by two is, let me get a calculator, carry the one, 12. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Pretty good. Could be. 12 representing Jews, 12 representing the, the faithful Jews, 12 representing Christians could be. But if it's the 12 apostles, John should be there, seated, and he's not. So I'm just throwing it out there because you read commentaries, you get a lot of opinions. Um, okay. They are wearing white robes. Angels sometimes wear white robes in the Bible. 
but so do the believers. They're wearing the righteousness of Christ. We've already talked about that. They're also wearing crowns. Believers do receive crowns of victory. They're not royal crowns like a king or a queen. They are crowns of victory. Do angels ever wear crowns in the whole Bible? Answer, no. So if, if this is angels, it's unique. I don't think it's angels, but there's really good scholars that think it's angels. Um, I'll tell you why in a second. Um, so this is redeemed man enthroned with Jesus. We're joint heirs with him. We will reign with him. Remember, John is seeing this present tense, but it is all what? Things that must soon take place. Future uh, stuff. Okay. One elder in chapter five and chapter seven does something that only angels do. We'll get there when we get to chapter five, probably 2040. It'll take us that long. But anyway, hopefully sooner than that. And that one of those elders is addressed by John as sir. Very, if he's a fellow elder, that's unusual. So that's why people think maybe they're angels. In Revelation 19 and in Revelation 7, when there's a great multitude and then there's angels, and the multitude is those that are saved, then there's the elders, as if they're a separate category from the ones that are saved. In the song they sing about God praising him for salvation, he, they state it as if he saved those people, not us. This is why some people think it's angels. Well, which is it? I don't know. Okay. Uh so they're grouped with other angels in more than one place. Yeah, we talked about that. That Their song is in chapter 14. Okay, so it could be all the saved humanity. I believe that's what it is representing. Or is it angels? I don't think so, but it's possible. I've been wrong before. It wouldn't be the last time I'm wrong. 24 other thrones. They are subordinate to him, God, on the throne. We haven't seen Jesus yet here except in the voice that said, come up here to John. Um, so they're dressed in white. They had crowns of gold on their head. They're rewarded. Remember, First Corinthians talked about that we get crowns based on our service for God that is done in sincerity for him, not for my own reputation or aggrandizement or for you to go, what a good guy you are, Joe, for doing that. All done for his glory. There are crowns. But the crowns don't last on their heads for long. Watch. Um, from the throne, uh, let's see. Yeah, verse five. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. This is no ordinary throne. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These, what do you mean these? The seven lamps are the seven spirits of God. We talked about this in chapter one, the seven spirits of God. Wait, I thought there was one Holy Spirit. There is. In the Old Testament, he is called the sevenfold spirit of God. I have it in my notes somewhere. Let me find it for you um, right now. The Holy Spirit's sevenfold characteristics. Um, oh, here it is. The spirit of the Lord, of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of power, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. 
the sevenfold spirit of God. The seven spirit, sevenfold spirit is the one Holy Spirit. So far, we've seen the Father and the Holy Spirit. We're about to see Jesus in just a little while. But there are some bizarre creatures. Those of you that like sci-fi, we'll get to those in a second. Um, so the seven lamps are not the churches. They're the sevenfold spirit of God. Um, we already talked about that. Okay. Let's keep rolling. Let me see. Did we finish that one? The whole picture of lightning, rumbles, rumblings, peals of thunder in the Bible is often God judging. Okay. So this God is in total control. He is um, always there. And the throne was set there. That doesn't mean they set it up while he watched. It means it's a permanent installation. It's not a movable or temporary throne that they're going to move to Yugoslavia or to Venus or Mars. It's always there. In fact, it's always been there. I wanted to mention that. Okay. Peals of thunder, lightning, rum. It's kind of a frightening scene. There's about to be some judgment starting in chapter six on unsaved planet earth. In front of the throne, seven lamps seven spirits of God. Verse six, also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. That's just like nothing. Pretty bizarre. It turns out it's just like the vision Ezekiel had. I'll show you that in a second. But let's cover the sea of glass first. Um, the sea of glass, the word is for finest glass. It really means crystal. And it's a sea of glass. Hence, it's not a room 14 by 20. It's a huge vision he's getting here. Um, okay. It could represent the need for cleansing as one approaches the throne of God. Why do you say that, Joe? Because in the temple, there was the laver, which was a washing area. And it was called a sea in the Old Testament. And it symbolized the need for cleansing in the temple and the tabernacle. Um, notice that the sea here is solid. It's a sea, but it's solid. Um, kind of interesting. Um, we can approach and it's solid with the fixed holiness of God's grace. Some see here the fact that God, Jesus, when he was on the earth, remember, walked on the sea. For him, it was solid. You and me, like Peter, we would sink, right? Uh, Peter sunk only when he took his eyes off Jesus, but that's a whole nother story. Um, yeah, we talked about that. Um, as someone who has lived his whole life on both coasts, Massachusetts, till I was eight and a half, almost nine, and then California since then, I have, we have always, my whole family has always lived pretty close to the ocean. Living here, it's three hours to the beach, Santa Cruz. It's the furthest I've ever lived from the ocean. I love the ocean. I love the sea. I love the beach. I was bummed to learn when I became a Christian that in chapter one, the eternal state, the new Jerusalem, there's no sea. There's no ocean. Now, the sea represents in the Bible a bunch of different things, so it's hard to categorize it. Sometimes it's the separation 
between God and men. Sometimes it's the restless humanity, it's called, of all of, of human beings. The Antichrist rises out of the sea. That's chapter 13, but we're not there yet, so don't worry about that yet. Um, Isaiah 57, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Um, also in the Old Testament, the abundance of the sea shall be converted to thee. The Gentiles shall come unto thee. Okay, but let's move on from this sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. Beasts is in King James. It's not really the right Greek word. Just wanted to say that. Four living creatures. Let me read the whole description and then we'll back up. So there it is in the middle of verse six. Four living creatures. We learn that they're covered with eyes in front and in back. Verse seven, the first living creature was like a lion. The second like an ox. The third had the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Okay, so there's the four living creatures. You see why I'm saying sci-fi movie? Like this is not something you would, six wings, eyes all around, the different heads, a head of a horse, I'm sorry, head of a, a man, head of a lion, etc. Okay, let's go back and look at that again. So these are living creatures. They're not robots. They're covered with eyes. Eyes in the Bible speak about wisdom, vision, insight, knowledge. Okay, they're not robots. They have extreme intelligence. They know what's going on. Okay, are they the Holy Spirit? No. Are they God? No. Are they angels? I believe they are. I'll show you why. But a, but in a unique type of angel, their job is to be around the throne of God. Remember throne, throne, throne. It's the key word here. The other key word in this chapter is, we're about to see it start to happen. Worship, worship, worship. That's what goes on in heaven. Okay, um, so here they are. Keep your finger here. Go to Ezekiel chapter one. You say, where's that? Find the middle of the Bible and take a right. If the middle of the Bible is Psalms or uh, Isaiah, take a right. You go past Jeremiah, Lamentations. You come to Ezekiel. If you're not a page turner, that's okay, but you won't get an A for today. Um, Ezekiel chapter one, uh, he gives some background in verses one through three. Um, let's see, pick it up in verse four, Ezekiel one, verse four. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire, there was what looked like four living creatures. Hmm. Coincidence? No. In appearance, their form was like that of a man, but each of them, each of them had four faces. Okay, well, that's a little different from Revelation. I'll explain why in a second. Each of them had four faces and 
four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings. Their wings touched each other. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as, their move, as they moved. Their faces, verse 10, looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left, the face of an ox. Each had the face of an eagle. Their wings were spread outward and it goes on. Now go back to Revelation. You say, that's pretty close, but there's some differences. Okay. If they each have the face of an ox or calf and a man and a lion, and I, I can't remember the fourth one now, um, eagle, thank you. Then if they are stationary where they're flying, they might be facing in such a way that they're each letting John see face of a man, face of an eagle, face of a lion, face of a ox or calf or whatever. You with me? so far? Okay. These are really weird looking angels. Okay. What's the point of all this symbolism? You may ask. I'm glad you did. Um, here's the various theories again. Here we go. And th these might all be true. I'll just tell you that. Number one, these four faces represent the four classes of created living things on the earth. Men, human beings, not just men, women, human beings, the highest of God's creation, separate category, okay? Calves or ox, domesticated animals. You with me? That would include dogs, cats, you know, all the stuff that's on a farm, domesticated animals. Um, let's see, uh, lions, non-domesticated animals, the king of those jungle and forest type animals, the lion. You with me? Non-domesticated, which leaves flying things, eagle being the sort of the head of the pack. You may ask, wait a minute, what about fish, whales, dolphins, and, you know, uh, frogs? Okay. That's all non-domesticated animals, right? Nobody's got a farm where they're, they've got dolphins plowing the fields or anything. Okay, so it could mean that. Here's an interesting one. The Jews, when they were to, when they were traveling in the Exodus, God told them, 12 tribes, you all know which tribe you're in, yes. The tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Dan, yes. You are to arrange yourselves in a certain way. Twelve tribes divided into, guess what? Four groups. And the four groups each had an animal as their symbolic um, logo, if you will, for lack of a better term. You might not be surprised to learn the tribe of Judah and the two other tribes that went with it, their animal was a lion. The tribe of Reuben, man. The tribe of Dan, eagle. The tribe of Ephraim and the two that went with that, a, a calf, bull, ox, whatever you want to call it. Coincidence? I doubt it. So is Israel involved here? Yes. Maybe is all of creation involved here in the symbolism? Could be. Okay. What else? You say there's more? 
Yes. The classic way, even in the early church fathers, when they described Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four gospels, listen, there's an animal or living thing that describes each one. In the gospel of Matthew, if you know Matthew, it is very Jewish. It's the most Jewish of the four gospels. It presents Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, okay. Mark presents Jesus as the humble worker, the humble servant, the ox, the calf, the one that works. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man, human being, never sinned. John presents him as the eagle. This is, goes back to the church fathers as the uh, eagle, the man from the sky, the man from heaven, if you will. So uh, we talked about the four faces. Uh, okay, let's move on with our weird creatures. Um, let's see, is that verse seven? Yeah. First one was like a lion because that face is what's facing him. You get the feeling that if John had walked around and he didn't, he might've seen that the lion had a man face here and a calf face back here and an eagle over here and the same for the others. That's the majority uh, opinion anyway. Um, like a flying eagle. Verse eight, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. What's their purpose? Day and night, they never stop worshiping God. In this chapter and the next chapter, five is still in heaven. Our field trip is going to last a couple of weeks here. In this chapter, there's all kinds of worship. The first thing that is worshiped about God, and the only characteristic that's repeated three times, is God is holy, holy, holy. Why is it three times? Many say because of the Trinity, okay? Holy, 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be holy? I grew up as a Catholic believing holy meant you're just, you're just sinless. You're just so pure and pious and holy. Yeah, right. If you knew me as a kid, you'd go, good try, Joe. Holy means, the word means separated, sanctified. It means separated out for God's purpose. That's what we're supposed to be, okay? That's what a church is supposed to be. This is a building that is a church. It's supposed to be holy, meaning what? This is not where we have basketball tournaments. This is not where we have, you know, rap concerts. This is not where we have Frisbee tournaments. This is a place where we worship God it, to, or learn about God or it's for God. Got the picture? Holy means separated out. None of us, including me, can be fully holy like God is. To say God is holy, holy, holy is to say he is so separate, separate from sinful man, from all evil, from all sin. He is so otherworldly. He's holy, holy, holy. Okay. He's not the man upstairs on the throne who makes mistakes. In Islam, Allah, the God of Islam, can sin. And he sometimes does. And he sometimes hides from people and not the God of the Bible. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. 
all power is his. That it, literally it means the one with his hand on everything. So that's how they're praising him and his eternality who was and is and is to come. There was no beginning for God. There's no end to God. Remember in the 1960s, early 70s, God is dead. Remember that? Wrong. Impossible. Um, and then there were bumper stickers. I remember a few years later that came out. Did you ever see them? They were yellow and it said, God is back and boy, is he mad. Anyway, he's not back. He's never left. He's Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. He's eternally God. He's holy. He's separate from sinners, from, from uh, all things evil. Whenever the living creatures, who are they again? With the weird wings and the faces and the eyes everywhere and kind of weird, right? Go home and try to draw a picture of this. It'll really like, wow, are you picturing it? With the flashes of lightning and the peals of thunder, the green um, rainbow and this figure that's glowing clear diamond and red and okay, you got the picture? Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks. Notice it's not glory, 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 honor, honor, honor. Only the holiness of God is repeated for emphasis, but he is totally glorious. They give him honor and they give him thanks. The one who sits on the throne, verse nine, and who lives forever and ever. Whenever they do that, something else is triggered. Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. The elders are there to worship God. Did you see the end of verse 10? They lay their crowns before the throne. They cast their crowns. Wait, weren't they their crowns of gold? Yes. But in the worship of God, they realize that I would have no crown if it wasn't for God giving me life, the opportunity, salvation, wisdom, the Holy Spirit. Without those things, you're not going to do anything to earn a crown in heaven. To the point that if you're honest, you realize it's not really my crown. They take them off and cast them, lay them before the throne. And what do they say? Verse 11, I am worthy. Is that what it says? No, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. They recognize they owe God, listen, 10%, 30, wrong, 90, wrong, everything. Even the crown, yes. I want you to notice the 24 elders, there is no jealousy of why is his crown a little bigger than mine? And hers has way more gems than mine. There's none of that. They're not focused outward. They're focused where? Throne, throne, throne worship 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 every time the i almost i almost read this uh, this is the third time i've studied revelation it's never hit me before like it did this time it's almost humorous every time those creatures say holy 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 the 24 elders fall down again and cast their crown again there was a thing that happened in the roman empire when the the caesar who was king or emperor Caesar over 
the whole Roman Empire. You got the picture? But he was ruling over lesser kings who were um, rulers over Egypt or over Syria or over um, France or wherever. And those kings would come and visit. And the normal thing that would happen is the kings would wear their crowns coming into the Caesar. But when they got up to the Caesar, recognizing that they were subordinate to him, they would take off their crowns and lay them at his feet as a gesture of showing, I'm, there's no way I'm competing with you. I have this crown because you're the king. The king would receive that worship, the Caesar, and then give them back their crowns. That's probably what's happening here. They're getting their crowns back, but they can't resist every time they bow down, they fall down on their faces, proskuneo, face down in absolute worship and, and adoration of God. And their crowns are to God because really to God be the glory. You ever hear that Christian saying, amen. All right, we're going to stop there, but we got a lot more field trip to go. Um, and we just about, I probably have a few more notes about this chapter, but we mostly whipped through it at record speed, may I say. Anyway, let's pick it up next week. If you have questions, email me. Um, if you have prayer requests, do that as well. Update your prayer requests, as I said. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know before you leave. That's really important. And let's pray and we'll get out of here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, this amazing book of Revelation. What an awesome view of the glory, God. We have to kind of digest all the colors and the lights and the creatures and the worship that goes on. We're thankful that you are there. There is someone on the throne in control. And one day we are going to see this scene with our own eyes. We'll see you there in all your glory and majesty. Lord, help us remember this scene when we pray that this is where our prayers are going. We're about to find out. This is the one hearing our prayers. It's too marvelous for words. Help us remember that you are totally out. You are totally in control when everything looks like it's out of control. When the world, the devil, the flesh, our enemies seem so powerful, help us to remember you're in control. We love you. You're the great, all-powerful, holy, 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 loving God. And we owe you everything. Bless these truths. May they change the way we live. God, we give thanks to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Those of you on Zoom, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time. God bless you.